The Democratic primary appears to be winding down now that Super Tuesday has winnowed the number of candidates in the race. Yet a lot of people are frustrated. They're not happy. And they're asking, is there a better way to pick a presidential candidate? Welcome to Politics in Question. My name is James Walner. I'm a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a professorial lecturer at the School of Public Affairs at American University. I'm Lee Drutman. I'm a senior fellow at New America. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. So guys, welcome. Is there a better way to pick presidential candidates? What are the alternatives out there? What are the different ways of going about doing it? What role should the people play? What role should the elite play? These are all types of questions that people seem to be debating and considering right now. And Republicans went through something like this in 2016, when many of them were unhappy with the outcome of that primary as well, with Donald Trump, now president. But it is important, and that's what we do here, to ask these big questions. So what do you think, Julia? So I think this is complicated. I think there's many better ways to do it, and that this process has has produced, as you pointed out, it's it's produced, I think it's drawn in the worst of all possible worlds. So it went on forever. It's about to, as you say, probably, if not end, is significantly narrow before a significant portion of the country has had a chance to vote. There's a dynamic in which party officials and what's, you know, what's been termed the party establishment or the party elites are pitted against activists in the grassroots. And I think that that's that's a false and unproductive distinction that both sides of that debate are contributing to in different ways. It's a diverse party with an incredibly diverse set of candidates that started out. There's survey evidence that suggests Democratic voters highly value having diverse candidates at the top of the ticket. And yet the field has narrowed down to only white men. Um, That's you know, it, to me, there's just like every every element of the the worst parts of every possible type of system have have fed into this extremely frustrating process that is, I think, likely to end in dissatisfaction among different elements of um, of the Democratic Party, making it making a strategic problem, make it harder for them to be competitive in November, and probably leading into a not very unified Democratic convention. And I I can say more about conventions too. So, Lee, Julia mentioned uh, two old white men. What's the current state of play in the Democratic primary right now? And why are so many people uh, frustrated? I didn't mention they were old, but they are. Well, they are old. So it looks like the Democrats are facing a choice of of Bernie or Weekend at Bernie's. Uh, It's a fabulous movie. Yes. Number one, not number two. Yeah. Yeah. The sequel sequel is a real disappointment. It is. We're going to have that in the show notes, right? Yeah. Of course. the The whole movie. Uh, be in the uh, show notes. Yes. So, uh, or Bernie or Biden. Uh, and yeah, it's sort of strange given the diversity of the Democratic Party that it, that the uh, voters settled on two old white men, despite saying they wanted somebody different. Uh, there was this whole specter of electability looming over the process. But you know, the process, yeah, it's a, it's a mess. It, it is uh, it is kind of a turd process. But, uh, but before we, and let's I want to talk about why it's a mess, and I think it's important to understand fully how we got here. But I and, and I think we should turn to that next. But I think it's important to point out that there is some diversity in the field right now. You, ha- I mean, Bernie Sanders and and Joe Biden aren't exactly intellectually 
and on policy. There's the ideological diversity. Right. So there's I, and I think that's an important point to to kind of underscore. But but you're right. And in terms of other measures and metrics of diversity, right. there's I, not. I mean, the, the other problem. Well, let's just put this on the table right now. Is is we expect way too much out of the presidency, and as a result, we expect way too much out of the primary process, right? I mean, we're a diverse country on a number of dimensions, and to try to find one person who can be everything to all people, not only in the party, but in the country, it's just dumb. So, well, that's that's a great opportunity to ask where we stand on this question. Lee, I think it's pretty obvious where, where, where I, Well, actually, I'm sitting down, but, yeah. but, you know, but where, where you where you... Yeah. Stand depends on where you sit, right? Or is it the other way around? Or sit down to, yeah. Yeah, well. Julia, what do you think? Is I mean, there a better way of picking the, the president or is it a, or a presidential nominee, I should say, or is it worth uh, having that conversation? Um, I think absolutely. And this is sort of what I'm writing a book about. Can I add in as we were talking about diversity? There is ideological diversity. I also think if, as we're talking about demographics, it is it's important to note that Bernie Sanders would be the first Jewish American presidential nominee if he were to win uh, the nomination. And that's pretty that is significant. I don't want to I don't want to brush back the importance of that. But I also don't want to brush back the importance of the various other kinds of questions of diversity that were that were initially on the table in this field and are no longer on the table. So much nachas, I feel. <laughs> That's an excellent, yes. excellent point, Julia. And as as for me, I imagine there's a better way of, of picking a presidential candidate. I'm not sure what that is. I don't know how strongly I feel about it. So I, I guess I'm up for grabs here. I'm in the middle. I guess I could argue against you guys just to make it interesting. Uh, but I absolutely think it's important to have that conversation because we often forget that the way these primary elections, like everything else in politics, are contingent, and they're contingent on things that have happened before and the development of things that that led us here. And, and we need to better understand that, and we need to understand what we have, why we have it, and then the ways in which we can make it better. But with that, I don't know, Lee, Julia, I mean, do any one of you want to kind of briefly give our listeners a little overview of of where primaries came from? It was like on the third day, God created primaries. I mean, That, what? that the, along with the giraffes? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I want to talk about, I want to just emphasize kind of three things. And the first one is that we still, our, our current convention system is a vestige of the convention system of the 1820s, which is that each state has a certain number of delegates, and those delegates are the ones who formally vote on the nomination. And all of the reforms that brought us to this place have, are rooted in this notion of delegates. And so I think a lot of the questions that we're, as a country, maybe having trouble addressing have to do with exactly what what is, what is it that those delegates should be and do. And previous discussions have been a lot about how will those delegates be selected. And I think that's some of the source of the, of the mismatch. So we have this initial system created to kind of bring different states together in the early American Republic to nominate presidents, to avoid coordination catastrophe, to avoid having four people running under, say, the same party label, resulting in the in the election ending up in the House of Representatives and the second place winner of the, the votes and the Electoral College becoming presidents. That's the election. Sounds like you're referring to something specific, Julia. Yeah, that's I that's election that's the election of eighteen twenty four. And that's where we get this system. And again I realize that sounds like I'm talking about really crusty ancient history. So first I would say by now our listeners probably know that, uh, that that's something I'm gonna do. But also 
that that again we're still in that vestige of that system the primaries come around in the early part of the 20th century with theodore roosevelt as the first the first uh president presidential primary i guess he's the first big presidential primary winner in 1912 but for a variety of complicated reasons he's not the choice of his Republican colleagues and the convention ends up renominating the sitting president, William Howard Taft, instead. Roosevelt, of course, runs as a third party, splits the vote, and the Republicans lose the presidency to Woodrow Wilson in 1912. But those are really the, that's really the first time that you get this argument in a presidential context that pits the voice of the voters, in this case it's voters in, like 12, in 12 states, versus the convention delegates who are the kind of party regulars. We fast forward then into the late 1960s, where once again, this dynamic between party elites and primary voters is becomes, you know, becomes really sour and ends in a clash over, you know, over the Vietnam War, over the status quo, younger versus older, people of color versus a white establishment, like a lot of similar kinds of of disagreements in the 1968 Democratic Party is what you see now. Not precisely the same alignments, but some of the same stuff. And out of that come the McGovern-Fraser reforms, which pretty much underlie the modern nomination process. And that says that pledged delegates must be selected through primary or caucus systems. It also you know, one thing that I want to emphasize about that process as it initially came out in the early 1970s is that it really did place an emphasis on who the delegates to the conventions would be in ways that still affect both parties. There's an emphasis on having delegates who who do represent a variety of demographic characteristics, to have women, to have people of color, to have younger people as delegates to the conventions. So even though the McGovern-Fraser reforms opened the process up considerably, taking power out of the hands of the elected officials in the party, the party leaders, and putting it into the hands of voters, there was still this assumption that the delegates were going to be important intermediaries and that who those delegates were and how they thought about things really mattered. So that's that's sort of how we get to today. And in the decades since in McGovern-Fraser reforms and now, you've seen a variety of efforts of party leaders to try and regain control over the process, particularly in the Democratic Party in in the wake of some election losses in the 1980s. You see the creation of superdelegates, unpledged delegates who are mostly elected officials who can vote at the convention without being instructed by primaries. Now those superdelegates are unable to vote on the first ballot as of a change in 2018. You also see more informally this kind of effort to, in a lot of election cycles, to informally coordinate around a nominee, and that tends to crowd out other kinds of other kinds of candidates. And we've seen that process break down quite a bit for both Republicans and Democrats in the last few cycles with some people making fairly serious outsider claims getting much closer to the nomination or in the case of Donald Trump actually winning it. Julia, and the theory that that you're describing, the uh, theory commonly known as the party decides theory, right? Correct. All yeah. right. We'll put that in the show notes too. The um, I just wanted to, to highlight something here though. It seems interesting it is as you're discussing it, Julia, it sounds like the way in which our delegate coming out of eighteen twenty four, Martin Van Buren really wants to defeat John Quincy Adams. And he's got a candidate, Andrew Jackson, to do it. And he creates an organization. He creates a party, a political party, to help mobilize the electorate in these different states at a time when popular votes for presidential electors was relatively widespread. And it sounds like that those sets of reforms helped strengthen the party. 
and allowed for you this kind of prototypical political party we have in our head these days. Whereas today, you have a different set of reforms and, and a different environment, admittedly, and you add to that the progressive reforms of the early 20th century that kind of undermined or weakened parties. And you have a system where the parties aren't able to exercise control in the same way that they once did. Is that is that a fair summary or comparison? I think that's a fair I think that's a fair comparison. I think the degree to which parties exercise control is pretty deeply contested in the political science scholarship, you know, as Lee was saying, that's there's that party decides theory that party leaders decide by coordinating informally. Some people would suggest that's not terribly terribly powerful. You know, Trump was obviously a challenge to that theory, but I also think that there's stuff going on in this nomination season that has been a bit of a challenge. That theory also only explained, you know, two thirds of the cases it looked at or whatever. But it seems to me that the choice of elected Democrats was not initially Joe Biden. It was probably more like Kamala Harris. So, you know, it's not obvious to me that the that party leaders can promote a candidate who isn't catching on with with key segments of the electorate. Like, I, I think that the problem is more complicated than leaders versus voters. Yeah, and that's a framework we're just sort of like stuck in, and it's not it's not productive. If or if you think of sorry, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. If you think of like uh, Pitkin's work on representation, it's yeah. not it's not unidirectional. Right. Right. Leaders are informed by their voters, and they're and they're a part of an environment that is created by their voters and their constituency. Sure. And yes, they also can help shape that environment. Well, and there's. Also, a question of of really what is the party, right? Is the party a set of elected officials? Is the party the the DNC? Is the party the people, right? I think a lot of voters think that the party is a public entity, and really it's a private entity. But to to think back to 1824 and Martin Van Buren, uh, I mean, at at the time, the, the party is built around one person, and Martin Van Buren and Andrew Jackson are the party. So there's not ton of factions in the party, but the Democratic Party has grown considerably since the 1820s. And now the party supposedly represents about half the voters, uh, represents a lot of interest groups, a lot of constituencies, a lot of different people and a lot of different places. And again, this idea that we're going to find one person who can be the tribune of this incredibly diverse coalition. I don't know. I'm not convinced that that Kamala Harris would have been the choice so, of of party elites. I think party elites were genuinely confused as to who they wanted. And it was just sort of the, the happenstance of the particular primary calendar and a, a timely endorsement by Jim Clyburn that gave Joe Biden the Joe Mentum that he needed. <laughs> Joe Mentum. I yeah. like it. But to, to summarize or to clear up what uh, Lee just shared with us, the, the notion among party scholars is pig pie po, party and government. So the elected officials, people who actually hold office or appointed office, you ha- that's one part of the party and it has a different set of members and a different set of activities. You have a party in the electorate, so the voters, people out in the hinterlands that actually cast the ballots for those 
candidates, the basically the coalitions. And then you have the party organization, which is basically activists and the kind of DNC, RNC, who, who really serve to try to, to mobilize that, that electorate. And so those things all work together to create what we know as the, the, the political party. But I will say one thing about the Jackson and, and Adams, and I think it speaks to a lot of the frustration today. There was an incredibly diverse coalition back then. I mean, Van Buren writes this in his famous letter to, to Thomas Ritchie, where he's like, okay, you know, we need to have a coalition and we don't agree on much. So let's agree on the only the things we agree on and not deal with and worry about these other things and keep those off the agenda. And the ambiguity of Jackson, I think, really helps them to, to do that. And, and, and in many ways, that's when candidates, uh, presidential candidates are really work really well. It's when they're not and they pit the two different sides against one another that the party system begins sure. to crumble. So, so that, then your point is that the, the party works well when, when we don't actually, or the party coheres when we don't actually debate the issues. Well, I'm not sure <laughs> that I would say that that is a good thing, but I would say that that certainly is why we think the parties are so coherent now, right? It's because they're not debating the issues. But anyway, we're getting a little further afield here. Well, well, no, but but I mean, I think that is an important point that there's a lot of talk about party unity. And if your argument, James, and this is this is a a, a elite motif of uh, a lead motif, elite light motif. It's light Uh, motif, but light lead motif. It goes with Joe Mentum. Yes, exactly. Well, maybe I'll, I'll do that. Right. I think you should want more fights within the parties to, I mean, that, that prior, you should love the primaries because that's the, that's the only time when we ever actually get to debate the issues. Correct. That's why I'm not sure that, I mean, I think they can be designed better. Sure. Um, I think they can, but it seems to me that the, the process itself isn't necessarily as broken as other people, you and Julia specifically have suggested. I'm, I'm not sure though. I, 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 I haven't spent enough time with it. I've certainly nowhere near as much time as, as Julia has. I mean, I, I don't know if it's the question is what what's it trying to solve? If it's trying to enforce party unity, or is it trying to reconcile everybody their nominee? I mean, I, fundamentally, the problem is that we are expecting too much out of the presidency. So with all this energy that goes into finding the standard bearer for the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, there's so much attention put on the primary. So everybody's running. Uh, that creates a factionalized field. And I just think the whole thing seem, seems incoherent because we're trying to force something into a bin where it doesn't fit. I think that's right. I, I agree with Lee that there's too much emphasis on the presidency generally and that presidential presidentially centered parties are weak parties and they're they're going to be weak democratically for a variety of reasons they don't have they don't produce a kind of mid-level tier of individuals of elected officials who can really meaningfully push back against the president who have distinct political capital and political bases of political support away from the president and they also obviously contribute to a situation where we want the president and the presidential ticket to do everything. So yeah. I have a I have a very specific take on this. I just wrote a piece at Mischiefs of Faction kind of in the wake of, of Super Tuesday. Which I would commend and we'll have in the show notes to all of our listeners. And this is really kind of what I think Julia does so well in her work, but just kind of helping to clarify the underlying issue and to provoke a discussion about different ways to solve it and the different solutions. Thanks. Yeah. So in this piece, you know, I'm specifically reacting to Super Tuesday, and I'm, I want to position myself a little to what I think is the the kind of 
if we're thinking about institutional process on a left-right spectrum with right being more closed and left being more open, I'm a little to the left of the average political scientist who I think maybe favors more of a system of going back to smoke-filled rooms or wants the party to informally coordinate. And I think that system's really, it has really done a bad job of representing the breadth of interests in both parties. But I want to, and I want to speak specifically about the Democratic Party because that's what's happening right now. But also because the Democratic Party has as we've alluded to in our discussion about its inception in the early 19th century, the Democratic Party is very, is always a very diverse and kind of, you know, lurchy coalition. It doesn't, it doesn't cohere around a clear set of messages as well as the Republican Party. And it's also at a disadvantage in the Electoral College. So if you're a Democratic Party leader and you want to win, you you really can't afford to lose any parts of your coalition. And so I think that should be the starting point for thinking about a primary process that brings lots of people in and that encourages the different sides of, a, of the debate that emerges to come to some kind of reconciliation. Right now, it seems to me like the pressures of, of party polarization have meant that the primaries kind of turned into the general. That's where people are looking to have a meaningful an interesting debate and that and that's great but it also seems like right now is you have a kind of moderate and left segment of the democratic party that the two sides are kind of trying to beat each other into submission and i don't think that that is is going to get either side what it wants so i tried to spin that out a little bit in the in the wake of super tuesday and i also differ with some other political science proposals like there's a number of political science proposals that suggest that party leaders should should do more on the agenda setting end on the front end vet candidates for qualification put up, you know, have an initial elites only um, elected. And I want to emphasize these elites are elected, right? These are people that can be held accountable, but that that would be sort of a closed vote for the slate of candidates and then voters get to pick. You know, that was something I saw someone float on the internet in response to something that I wrote. I actually think that it sounds counterintuitive, but it makes more sense to let voters set the agenda and then allow party elected officials to delegates to bargain, not because I don't think voters can make the decision themselves or should make the decision themselves, but because making a collective decision with millions of people is hard. It's very difficult to do. I had my students do an exercise where they, this is back in August, in the beginning of the fall semester, where they said their preferences for um, either primary, and then I had them guess kind of what the percentages breakdown was in the class. And this is, you know, I teach at a relatively small private institution. These are all pretty much political science majors and they know each other. And they still didn't do that great at guessing each other's preferences. They still didn't do that great at at kind of understanding the shape of the class, including roughly how many Democrats and how many Republicans they were. They were pretty, on average, they were pretty much like 10% off. So you know, and their their classmates are more polarized than they anticipated. So it's very hard to do that on the fly. And that's why I favor letting voters set the agenda, not only not only casting a ballot in a, in a primary for who they want, but also for their their second choice, their third choice, which gets into some of Lee's favorite territory. Mm-hmm. Um, and also and also having a kind of preference primary around issues. Obviously, this would be this would be wild figuring out what questions would go into this. But actually getting a sense of where people in the party's electorate stand on the issues, what what they see as their top priorities, um it sounds terrifying if you're a member of Congress. Yeah, clarity right? and I mean, accountability. I, I think that that's. I think that a lot of the conversation in the 2020 primary has been around party elites can weaponize everyone's kind of collective ignorance about what other people are thinking. Right? You can never know what other people are thinking, and so someone can scare you into thinking this candidate is too far left, or we'll never elect a woman, or we can't elect a person of color. You know, I think it actually really 
it could advantage anybody, but I think in practice it tends to advantage sort of moderate white traditional people who look like traditional politicians, I think, have, have used this, our collective um, inability to know what other people are thinking. Well, I, I'm not sure if, if if nobody knows what anybody is thinking. There is a lot of polling, and the polling uh, did show that Joe Biden was doing best in head-to-heads uh, against Donald Trump and was certainly doing better than Elizabeth Warren. Uh, so, and voters were clearly responding to that. Uh, he was doing a little better than Sanders. So, I mean, w- whether or not that that polling is actually reflective because we haven't actually run the general election and there's some level of name recognition, but there's an awful lot of polling and part of it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy of, you know, once once the poll numbers look a certain way, everybody says, well, you know, Biden's doing a little better than Warren, so therefore we should move support to Biden or we should move to support to to Sanders if you if you prefer somebody who's more liberal. So in some ways the problem is is we know too much and we don't trust our own instincts. We're we're looking to see what everybody else is doing. I guess that's right. I mean, I guess for me it's also part of the problem there is that it's perceived as kind of a one-shot deal. Right. Where there's like and you hear people express this in the 2020 primary of we have one chance to get this to get this right. And and I guess that that's like if you're a Democratic primary voter, that 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 is true. Right. There will be one nominee. Um, But it would be useful if you had a sense that, well, you could you could actually go in and publicly weigh in your preference. And you sort of know this isn't just like something you're saying to a pollster. This isn't just, you know, a poll that, you know, maybe is representative of the electorate. Maybe it's not. You're going to go in and say say what you think. And then people will have access to look at all of that, all of that data and actually have a sense of what the shape of the. The opinion is it's it's true. This is sort of an experiment. It could have, you know, crazy consequences. But for me, it just it seems like, I don't know, the most American thing to do governing wise is to experiment. Amen. I also want to say something about name recognition, because I started to really think about this as I was looking at some some primary data. And it seemed to me that we have this hugely long process to ultimately I'd have the nomination come down to the two people with the most name recognition. And, you know, and not for nothing, right? People who have high name recognition have have worked hard in the public eye to to gain that. But even though you saw, you know, an impressive rise by someone like Pete Buttigieg to go from someone who really wasn't very well known to a better known candidate, Biden and Sanders came in with a huge advantage in that in that regard. And I think that the notion that we're voting for a person can actually really distort preferences because people do People do vote for the name that they know. But I actually think and this goes into some deeper theories of public opinion. If you ask people who've studied what people know about politics quantitatively, they often paint a grim picture in which people don't don't know. Often it's like a lot of names, right? They don't know a lot of names. But when you talk to people who study public opinion in a qualitative context, and I'm really influenced by work and conversations I've had with, with Kathy Kramer at UW at University of Wisconsin, Joe Sauce at the University of Minnesota, people who do interviews and sit down with people, even if people, you know, they can't name all the justices on the Supreme Court or they don't know who the Secretary of Labor is or whatever, they, they know their lives and they know what they care about. And I think our primary process does an incredibly bad job of capturing the nuance of the preferences of either party's electorate of what people really think. And I don't think we can do a perfect job of that, but I think we can do better. And we could start from that premise rather than a premise that a primary is a bunch of candidates duking it out. That serves that serves the candidates. That serves media outlets. Right. That which, you know, which I personally benefit from. 
but it also seems to be very unproductive long term. If you think about it, how Republicans initially reacted to Trump and how Democrats reacted or are reacting to Sanders right now, it's a you 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 know kind of beating voters into submission. Right now, you don't see the Democratic Party so much as you know building up other candidates and trying to speak to the concerns of Sanders voters. Right, you see them say you know basically well, say well, fall in line. This is and and it's defined negatively against Trump, and that you know it may work, it may not work, but in the end, it certainly isn't healthy. It it doesn't create a better, more uh, durable and sustainable coalition. And I think that's what's interesting about us today, and 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 Martin Van Buren in his day, right? I mean, a different situation completely, but he still had an idea of how to create a sustainable, durable, long coalition. And today, it's the the kind of well the sustainable the, the, aspect the coalition is held together away. by negative partisanship correct which and, that, which then it wasn't an option and right well I mean, there right, was I mean, plenty but, of but negative that's... partisanship in the 19th century i think sure but not in terms of one monolithic side but this is a problem with the yeah. two-party system is that you can you can breaking win. the two-party doom that's loop. right breaking the two-party doom loop available uh, wherever you buy books and listen to our episode on it. Uh, all right, but but it, th- that's the thing that holds the party together. And the Democratic Party, you know, can say to Sanders voters, you know, get on board with the Biden train because you don't want Trump. And then it doesn't have to listen to the concerns of those voters. And in many ways, the Republican Party spent a long time dismissing the concerns of people who voted for Donald Trump in the primary, at the same time as getting them to feel like the Democratic Party was incredibly evil. And that negative partisanship spiraled into support for Trump. So I think that there's a real danger in just, this is just a function of the two-party system, is that the only way to herd that coalition together is negative partisanship. And it's not about listening to what the voters want. It's about telling them what they don't want. Well, and I do think that, and Julia makes an excellent point here about the bargaining that happens between different factions within within a party. And there's just there are too many voters for that to happen in a real way nationally. But then that's certainly what the convention system once was. I, I agree with Julia. I'm not on the closed side. I don't think we should go back there. But you have a situation where you have people who come into an environment, come into an organizational setting, and they say, I want to win. I want to influence this outcome. I want to pick this candidate. And then they start going about trying to do it. And, they, and they're bargaining. And in the end, someone gets more of what they want. Someone gets less of what they want. But there is a process that plays out, an informal process. Yeah. And, and right now, it certainly doesn't appear to be that. Well, I mean, it used to be that you know people would get their person on, on, the, on the ticket or uh, as VP. And, and also, I mean, the other thing that's happened is that so much of the power in Washington has moved towards the executive that now it's become so much more important who that presidential standard bearer is than it ever was because Congress has basically rolled over and and given up legislative leadership to the presidency. And there's a sense that nothing's going to happen in a gridlocked Congress anyway. Uh, but, and on that but, point, that's, sorry to interrupt, this is exactly, you said it better than I was trying to say it earlier, but because of the institutional imbalance we have right now, it appears to me that we expect more from our primary system than it's supposed to well, give us. Well, of course. And, yes, exactly. That's we want the problem. These, you know, we want these candidates to be able – we want to have these big debates over all these issues on a debate stage and during a campaign. And I'm not sure that's – Well, not – not, and certainly not if, if, if it's just about getting up there and giving your one-minute right. speech. 
When you have a debate that goes on for three days, and then it's in a test of endurance. Lincoln-Douglas, what do you think, Julia? Do we need more Lincoln-Douglas More Lincoln-Douglas. More Lincoln-Douglas. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so debates are debates are so, so challenging. I... um. I, I went in a, in the absence of this podcast a couple weeks ago. I did go on uh, Vox's Today Explained to talk about primaries, and one of the things we talked about were debates. And like in theory, I think it would be great to have lots more debates. I like, I mean, I like Lee's some of Lee's suggestions about having more of like a endurance test. I got frustrated, and maybe I'm not the target audience in hearing the same debate over and over, but also in the ways in which those debates shaped the presidential field kind of shaped the ideological field. Sorry, my computer went to sleep, but I wanted to make sure it was still recording. You know, I feel like that's sort of where we got this notion of moderates and liberals and never the twain shall meet, right? We got to watch everyone yell at each other about Medicare for all a bunch of times. And I think that that was, that was really counterproductive. I also think the way we do debates now highlights all the worst qualities of otherwise fairly qualified people. Yes. Um, I don't understand why the parties just don't run their own, don't just run their own debates. Like give it, give it over to the networks. I mean that 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 seems another thing that's stupid. But you're right, Julia, that we wound up having this debate about Medicare for all or Medicare for all who want it or public option, when that is something that Congress has to figure out, and Congress has to legislate on. If we're gonna look at the qualities that distinguish a president, we should have had a lot more discussion about foreign policy. We should have had a lot more discussion about administrative rulemaking. Yes. So I think only you and I are going to watch that debate, Lee. Then, then you and I can decide instead of Jim Clyburn. <laughs> so here is my... Um... Here, here is my kind of plug for the presidency, and I don't mean this really in a normative way because I think you're right. It's the the only meaningful way to have representative government is to have Congress, and part of part of doing that would be to encourage this kind of robust middle level of of the party, as opposed to parties being a kind of direct relationship between voters and the president, which it sounds democratic but is actually not. But here, let me defend the the president in two ways, or defend kind of the emphasis on the presidency, and one is that. If, if we're going to have the situation that we have, the presidency is going to be a focal point of how to unify different factions in Congress. And I know- Wait, what, what, what do you mean the situation that we have? I guess the situation we have, I mean, is that the presidency is its really central figure in the political system. So I'm not exactly defending that state of affairs. I'm just kind of saying how I think, how I guess how we can best navigate around that. So assume assume a robust presidency and yeah. a weak and a weak legislative branch. Yeah, one thing is that if you're going to have any chance of getting anything through the the legislative branch, assuming that there is unified government, you want a president who actually can understand and speak to the different factions of the party as they're represented in Congress, because the president can, at least in theory, be kind of pivotal negotiator across those different factions and coalition builder. So is that an ideal state of affairs? No, but you know, is that better than having the president be purely a messenger for one wing of the party? I think yes. The other thing, this, I'm not sure I'm really arguing with you here, Lee. I think I'm just picking up on your point about talking, having debates about administrative rulemaking is one question that I don't think is that hard of a question to ask or that unpalatable of a question for, for audiences to listen to is to ask candidates how they would assemble their White House team. Yeah. I know you, Lee, and I have talked a lot about this. Wasn't this binders of women in Romney? Yeah, binder, yeah. I mean, top. honestly, that was probably the best answer. It was probably you know the best we're going to get. But um, 
that's a it really matters. You know, you can have a policy that's reasonably popular and that makes all the sense in the world. And if the White House team is not well assembled, if there's not a smart person in the chief of staff role, if the president hasn't made shrewd decisions about the degree to which that policy will be centralized in the White House versus policy decisions are made by um, by members of the, the cabinet, if the president hasn't thought that through, then a policy that that has the potential to be really beneficial and you know and and appeal to a lot of people a popular policy still isn't going to go through political management really matters and that i don't think that's crazy to imagine that we could discuss that in the context of a nomination debate well in in some ways i mean uh, the 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 advantage of a of a biden presidency for understanding the presidency is that it if it is a weekend at bernie's presidency we, we will really come to appreciate that it's all about who's running the white house on a day-to-day basis not not who the person sitting in the oval office is but i think this this actually makes me more open to large-scale reforms of the kind you're talking about, Julia, because clarifying the administrative presidency, uh, the the kind of executive function of the presidency, clarifying that role and juxtaposing it uh, to the legislator-in-chief role really highlights just simply changing the number of states that when they vote, how early they vote, who votes first. Right now, the, the discussion is, well, we'll just, Iowa shouldn't go first because they're not representative. Well, that means somebody else should go first, or it means someone else. But then you're just, you may be advantaging other states or other parts of the nation to pick someone who ultimately has this disproportionate power as legislator in chief to really kind of frame the agenda and to do all this stuff. And I think that's a valid concern. You're, you're trying to d- decide who gets to decide, although it turns out South Carolina was the the, the decisive state despite going forth. Uh, and Nevada and South Carolina probably had more power in picking the nominee than uh, Iowa and New Hampshire. But I mean, th- this is the crucial point. It's the question of what what are we selecting for? We're selecting for we should be selecting for an administration. What the process is selecting for is a superhero. But that's, to a certain extent, that has, that notion has been there. I mean, yeah, not always. It has I been mean, there, but it's 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 there more than ever now. That's fair. So we're probably running long on time here. So we're short on time here. So where where are you got? Have you? I don't get the sense, Lee, that you've changed your mind much. That that there, there. The way we are picking our president is awesome, and we should stick with it. It's not awesome. So, well, that's very yeah. optimistic. But I, you know, I, I, you know, look, I, I'd like to see ranked choice voting in the primaries. I think that would be a good thing because it would allow voters to better express their preferences, and it would definitely help candidates who are more consensus, unity-oriented candidates. But I think the problem is when, when there's too many people in the nomination process, you wind up with factional candidates. And the whole strategy of getting the nomination is to consolidate a small faction enough to be an early front runner and then hope that you outlast the early states and, and are in a good position for Super Tuesday. So that's not great. But if the party is going to make it so that everybody who wants can enter, then that's going to be the reality. So I don't know. I mean, maybe we have to raise the thresholds for who, who can be a, a nominee in the first place. Julia, what do you think? So I stand by my general my general idea that the process should be changed to make you know to have to allow voters to have input not just on candidates but more broadly on on issues, moving it away from a more candidate centered kind of focus. And that 
party leaders should should play a role, but that role should be robustly representative. And so instead of having it be a fight about the preferences of elites versus the preference of voters, it should be how do we make elites work for their voters? And how do we take advantage of the, the structural advantages that that happen when you have a group of delegates, people who've spent spend a lot of time working on something and who understand how their party works and who are motivated to win, you know, how can we take advantage of what that situation brings um, and have it work for the party electorate? That, I want to point out, can I say one more thing? Yeah. I want to point out one thing, you know, I did, Lee's, Lee's point about polls and, you know, the kind of information that we have in real time does you know, does raise something I want to think a little bit more about. Like, how, how helpful would it be to have some kind of issue preference primary, given the, the richness of the polling environment? The true losers of that of that proposal may be our pollsters. Well, I, I mean, to, to push, I want to challenge you a little bit on this issues question, because, I mean, a lot of that comes down to what the candidates are, are talking about, too. That I mean, if we accept that a lot of public opinion comes from political elites that voters decide what's important based on what the candidates are talking about. So Democratic voters are talking, say healthcare is important because they're hearing a lot about healthcare. I think a lot of that is going to come down to how the questions are are framed for the voters. So there there is this. Uh, so I, I don't even know how I would think about how to properly divine the priorities of voters. I mean, I think in part that that's what a diverse field of candidates is trying to do. It's trying to pick up the issues that are being unrepresented and, and you know, plaudits to Andrew Yang for doing that. I think, you know, I think there there were lots of attempts to, to try to find some issue that was being uh, undervalued by party elites, uh, the environment to some extent. I mean, Beto tried to do that with guns and it didn't work out, but that may have been a problem with Beto, not guns. So I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure how much I am definitely more open to the idea that we should ref, it could be reformed. And I think there are some very good ideas out there. I'm definitely more on the open side, not the closed side. But ultimately, politics in a democratic republic is about adjudicating the concerns of citizens somewhere and then reconciling them to outcomes when those collective decisions are ultimately made. Congress is dysfunctional for a whole host of reasons on this score. But it seems that the primary process also appears to be dysfunctional as well. And there may be better ways to go about doing that so that at least in the end, you don't get this great. You're, no one likes losing. No one's ever going to like it when their dream candidate doesn't prevail. But at least they will feel like the system and the process gave them a, f a fair shot. I think that's that's an important thing that, that we shouldn't forget about. And there also may be some lessons in the past that we can look to in the 19th century. I mean, admittedly, this was to protect the South and slavery. But the Henry Clay's Whig Party, the Jack, uh, Jacksonian Democrats, they had structures in place or norms in place to create balanced tickets, to bring in different diverse views, to to you know, to get that kind of diversity. And there's no reason that what worked for the South can't work for other parts of the country or other geographic uh, locales or, or, or other things. So I think there's a lot of ways that we can think creatively about this problem to the extent that it is a problem. And it, 
And at the very least, it makes us conscious of the fact that we get to decide how we want our presidential primaries to go. And we get to structure them. And we, if we don't like what they're doing, then we can change them. And right now, we too often get the sense that we're just victims. And there's this you know, this thing out there that that is forcing these uh, unhappy and unpleasant realities on us. And that's not the case in America. So That's the two-party I, system. I've been a, It's forcing the, these difficult realities on us. Always on message. But, uh, so I've... <laughs> I'm actually a little bit more heartened after our discussion today than I probably thought I was going to be. But but, but yeah, I think I am. I'm going to stand by that. Yeah, I think I just want to say in, in response to what Lee said, again, I'm I am taking your comments into advisement. I'm thinking about them. Um, and I see that that's factually true, that candidates are, are driving a lot of what people are thinking about. But I think that the theme of our our discussion here is there there are some of these processes that are top down or that feel exclusionary but it doesn't have to be that way absolutely well to a, to a better primary season next year power to the primaries next time thanks for listening thank you for listening to politics in question the show is a joint production of new america and the r street institute and our producers are elena soros shannon lynch and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly.